Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Welcome to News from the Torah. This is Leah Aroni. Today is the 13th day of the Hebrew month of Kislev and December 7th. This week we're reading the Torah portion on Vaishlach, in which Yaakov, after leaving Haran and leaving Levan, is going back to the land of Israel. And before he comes back to the land of Israel, he encounters a life-altering meeting with his brother Esav. And so this week, I would like to take this encounter between Yaakov and Esav and to see how it reverberates in our culture in the meeting between the Jewish culture and the Western culture. And it is a very apropos partial to the events of this coming week because next week, on Monday and Tuesday, we will mark the day of the Balatanya, the first founder of the Chabad Hasidut, the author of the Tanya. And uh, this is a seminal text of Hasidic tradition. And if you've been following this show, you know that I'm very connected to the Hasidic tradition and to the Balatanya in particular. And so, on this day, the Balatanya was released from prison, and it is considered to be the new year of Hasidic tradition. And actually, I think it is the Hasidic tradition, and especially the Balatanya, more than anybody else, who symbolized the power and the mindset that gives us today the ability to stand up to the Western mentality, which is the complete opposite of the Jewish outlook. So as Yaakov is about to approach the land of Israel, he finds out that Asaph with 400 men is quickly approaching and he's afraid that Asaph will start a war against him. And Yaakov takes his uh, people, his family, and he divides it into camps so that if one camp is attacked, another camp will survive. He sends Asaph a present, and he prays. These are the three ways that Yaakov prepares for this encounter. He prepares for war, he prepares with prayer, and prepares with a gift to Asaph. These are his ways of making sure that he'll be okay. And when Asaph comes, he really wants to attack Yaakov, but instead he hugs him and he kisses him. And it is so interesting that especially at a time when there seems to be in the text, in the text of the, of the Torah, this seemingly beautiful encounter between two brothers, what our sages tell us is that it's a halacha. It's a halacha that Asaph hates Yaakov. Now, it's not a halacha in a way that we have a halacha of Shabbos, for example, or of keeping kosher, that we have a law. But it's a law in nature. When the Chazal tell us that it's a halacha, they mean there is a law in nature. It's an immutable fact that Asaph hates Yaakov. It was always this way. It will always be this way. But there's this sweet, one sweet moment of quote-unquote honeymoon 
that Esav embraces Yaakov. But we see, however, that Yaakov is very weary of staying with Esav. And when Esav suggests that he will accompany Yaakov on his way to the land of Israel, Yaakov finds every single opportunity to basically rid himself of Asaph because he understands that although there is this moment of sweetness, there's this moment of embrace, um, it's not going to be for long. And afterwards, he'll be better off on his own. And if I'm thinking about recent Jewish history, I think the most momentous collision between Jewish culture and the Western world was during the Holocaust. And I don't mean to say that, God forbid, that Hitler represents um, Western world today or any of its tendencies, but I think the greatest collision between Western civilization and the Jewish people was in the Holocaust. And afterwards, there was this little honeymoon. There was this little moment in time when the Western world embraced the Jewish people by uh, approving the partition plan and giving the Jewish people the land of Israel. So there was this embrace. But almost right away afterwards, um, very, very soon afterwards, the Western world turned its back on Israel. And, for example, the French and the British imposed an embargo on um, arms when Israel was fighting a war against uh, Egyptians, or actually when the Egyptians and the other Arab countries attacked Israel in 1956. And um, there's a lot of anti-Semitism and has always been a lot of anti-Semitism in the Western world, in Israel. And today we're seeing growing anti-Semitism in the United States and um, growing anti-Israel sentiment. Israel is the only democratic country in the world to be um, compared to apartheid South Africa. Um, there are a lot of places and a lot of people that think that it's okay to be anti-Israel and uh, anti-Zionist and Harvard University has actually been found lately to be the most anti-Israel and anti-Semitic campus in the United States. So yes, there was a short embrace of the Jewish people by the United Nations, by the League of Nations in 1947, but it was a very short uh, honeymoon. And since then, Israel has been forced to develop its own strength and its own might because it really cannot rely on anybody to protect it, on anybody to stand by it. And I think it's a very important point for all of us. Um, I think we believe that bad things cannot befall Jews in the Western world. We believe that Jews will be okay in Europe. We believe that Jews will be okay in the U.S. And we have a lot of faith in our, you know, in our neighbors. And I really hope that it stays this way. I know there are a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are not Jewish. And I'm sure you are all amazing, terrific people. But our history has taught us over the ages that even when Jews were welcomed, to certain places. Not only were they welcomed, they were actually called and invited and asked to come. Please come and settle in our city. Please settle in our country. We want you here. And they were um, given all kinds of benefits to come and settle in certain places, in certain cities, in certain countries. Unfortunately, those honeymoons were short-lived. And 100 years later, 150 years later, um, the pogrom would follow. Okay, there's actually some very interesting research that is coming out of 
the UK and Germany. Um, in the past few weeks, it's been covered very widely by different publications, and it's about uh, research that was done by archaeologists on teeth of Jews found to be buried in the UK and in Germany. And by comparing the history of these communities with the archaeological findings, what the historians are telling us is that Jews were invited to these places, they were called to these places by the rulers, they were wanted there, but sure enough, a hundred years later, there's a pogrom and the and the local population came after the Jews and killed off those communities. So uh, there's actually a bottleneck in the history of European Jewry where it seems like most of Ashkenazi European Jews really came from a very few families because everybody else was killed. <laughs> so I, I think when we look at the text of the Torah, and the text of the Torah seems to be suggesting on the surface of this, this nice, pleasant relationship between Asaph and Yaakov, um, Chazal tell us, our sages tell us, don't be fooled. Just like Asaph wanted to kill Yaakov uh, two weeks ago in the in the Parsha, and just like Asaph is coming at Yaakov with 400 armed men, yes, there is this change of heart, and then there is this kiss and hug, but it's short-lived, so don't believe in it. And I think every single Jew has to take it to heart. You're living in an amazing country, an amazing city, surrounded by amazing, terrific, honest, good people. And that's beautiful. The home of the Jewish people is only in the land of Israel. This is the only place where Jews can be themselves. This is the only place where Jews will be safe. This is the only place where Jews will have their own army and protect themselves. So we have this encounter, this kiss between Asaph and Yaakov. As Yaakov is about to enter the land of Israel, we have this kiss encounter between Asaph and Yaakov as um, the Jewish people are about to establish their land in Israel. And Asaph here is... Um, I think, represented by the League of Nations. But what's also interesting is that we also have a clash of cultures, not only on the physical level, but also on the thought level, mental space level, in the world of ideas. And that clash took place about 200 years ago um, when Napoleon was conquering Europe and bringing you modern ideas into the world. And what's the basic notion of modernity? What's the basic notion of modernity? It's the singularity of man and the central place of each individual in the world. Now, on the one hand, it's a beautiful idea because it led to emancipation and it led to democracy and it led to human rights. And we see around this time, you know, about 200 years ago, by the turn of the 18th century, um, 19th century, that um, this idea of human rights is taking root. It's taking root in the United States with the Bill of Rights. It's taking root in Europe. And over the next several decades over the first half of the 19th century, many of the countries throw off the yoke of monarchy and become democratic. It's a process that takes about 100 years. 
But that's basically the process. And the person who brought that um, notion, who fought for that notion, was um, quite ironically Napoleon. He is the person who really brought this idea to the forefront more than anybody else following the French Revolution. So, ironically, it is Napoleon who wanted to also conquer Russia when he was on his way to conquer Russia um, 108 years ago. The Jewish people, the Jewish rabbis, couldn't make up their mind. Do we want Napoleon to conquer Russia or do we not want Napoleon to succeed? So a few rabbis met to discuss this issue. And there were people on both sides of the issue. And some of the rabbis said that under Alexander, under the Russian Tsar, the Jews suffer. The Russian regime was cruel to the Jews and um, Jews had no rights under it and they were poor and oppressed. So it's amazing that uh, Napoleon will come and he will emancipate the Jews and will give the Jews rights and will enable us to become part of society. But on the other hand, Rabbi uh, Shnel Zaman of Leandi, the Alta Rabbi, the first rabbi of Chabad, said absolutely not. Maybe Napoleon will be great for the Jewish body, but he will absolutely kill the Jewish soul because his ideas are antithetical to the Jewish ethos. And this is what I would like to spend some time understanding because this is such a relevant issue for today's current culture war. This idea of superiority of men and the central place that every individual takes in society is exactly the idea of Asaph. When they meet, Asaph says, Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. And Yaakov says, Yeshli Kol, I have everything. So it seems to be a change in semantics, but our forefathers and our sages pick up on that and they say, when Asaph says, Yeshli Rav, says, I have a lot, it means that he lives in a world of multiplicity. Every single person is for themselves. If each person is an individual, we're a world made up of 8 billion single individual unconnected people. Each person lives in his own world. Each person is connected and concerned about his or her well-being. It's the I world, the iPhone, the iPad, the iPod. The I world, the world in each person looks at their own I and I am in the middle. My ego is in the middle. And so we live in a world of rav, of multiplicity, of disconnection. And on the one hand, it's important to pay attention to the rights and the well-being of every individual. But when you take this philosophy to its extreme, we become a very self-centered, egoistical society where nobody really cares about the other. And we see this, people say, I want to be, let's say, child-free. Why should I bother myself with bringing up other individuals? Why should I contribute of my time to bring up children? You know, I want to think about what's good for me. I want to have my hobbies and my ideas and my job. What I want, oh, why should I get married? Why should I 
weigh myself with this other person that I am responsible for. You know, I can go in and out of relationships as works for me. Who needs marriage, right? Or um, today in the world of work, we know that for millennials, it's very, very hard to commit to a job. You know, they come and go, and if they don't like the workplace, they leave. Because it's all about the I. It's all about what I feel. And I think in today's Western world, this idea of I has been taken to just about its extreme, you know, to the extent that there, nothing is constant anymore. You know, today I feel like a man or a woman. I can change my gender. I can change, um, you know, who I hang out with because who is there to tell me what I should do? Everybody can do anything. They can identify any way they want. I identify any way they want. And nothing is constant and nobody can tell anybody anything. And the Worst thing you can do is judge because who are you to tell me what to do? So it's this autonomy of human beings taken to the extreme, I feel. The Jewish concept of the world is actually extremely different. And it's actually the opposite. The idea of human rights obviously exists because every person is so precious, every person is so important. The feelings of every person is so important and everybody has to be very careful and watchful in the way they treat each other. But this is not because Judaism believes in autonomy and individuality of every person. It believes in the individuality of every job that God gives us in the world. So we are not autonomous human beings. We are representations of God. We're transcendent light of God having a physical experience in the world. We're not autonomous. We are part of God. We don't have separate existence. We have joined existence. And this is why Yakusas Yeshli call have everything, but it's a holistic everything where every single particle, every single part, every single piece comes together to create one whole. So on the one hand, if you have this one whole, every single part is important because without it, the whole is deficient. But on the other hand, each separate item or each separate individual cannot stand on its own because it has to be connected. So the Jewish outlook is not individual based. It's the it's holistically based. We all come together to create a beautiful world for God because each one of us is a representation of God's will in the world. And if we live this way, if we understand that I'm a representation of God's will, but also my neighbor, so is my neighbor, my child, my spouse, then we have a very different life. We're very careful about the feelings and the needs of other people because we see them as godly, just like we see ourselves. But we don't get into rights and we don't get into individuality and and um, separateness. Okay, it's a much more multi-dimensional world which takes individuality into account because every person has a different job in the world, a different mission in the world, but it's a world in which people don't look out for themselves, for I. They look out for the good of the collective and first and foremost for the good of God because we come here to make this world more godly. 
And this is the central teaching of the Hasidic movement. So when the Balatanya wrote the Tanya in um, the late um, 1700s, just really a few years before the Napoleonic Wars and before Napoleon you know, took over the world, what the Tanya was is an antithesis. It's like an anti-poison for the ills of the modern world. Basically, God creates the medicine before he creates the illness, and the Tanya is the medicine for the ills of the modern world. So it goes back to this encounter between Asaph and Yaakov, in which Asaph stands for individuality. 400 separate people come with him. Each one is a separate person, a separate being, and they all come together for a purpose, but each one is on his own. Whereas by Yaakov, it's Hakol, it's everybody coming together. It's one family, it's one unit, they all travel together, and they're interconnected. And this idea really plays out in our time, because the progressive world around us is really built on this idea of individuality and rights. Every person being there for themselves. And unfortunately, right now in Israel, we're seeing a culture clash as, for example, the incoming government wants to bring more Judaic studies, more Jewish identity, more Torah to the people, even maybe in small doses. And on the other hand, it wants to erase from the educational system various programs that are being funded by European governments and various progressive programs. The, uh, the outcry from the representatives of the previous government is huge. The delegitimization, the the wording, the lexicon, the, the you know the the kinds of words that are being used by politicians, really really are incomprehensible. I can't believe that left wing politicians and the outgoing government is letting itself stoop to such low levels and not honor the outcome of these elections. Obviously, the people have spoken. So, yes, it's a democracy and every side gets its own uh, ability to, to, to talk and to, to create its policy. But I think the lack of understanding, the lack of respect, and the lack of acceptance for traditional Jewish values and for this outlook of bringing more Judaism into the educational system, for example, which is, by the way, what most Israelis want, whether they're religious or not, they do want more Judaism in the system, um, I think really represents this um, culture war that is going on in Israel right now. So now uh, let's take this to our personal level, because, you know, we don't live in the world of politics. We each have our personal little life. And how can we incorporate more of this mindfulness of Yeshli Kol, I have everything, not Yeshli Rav, not I have a lot, but I have everything, where everything plays together. And I think if we are more action and purpose oriented, instead of being more ego oriented, we can do that. My teacher, Rachel Arbus, often says, when a person finds themselves in a certain dilemma, Okay, and that dilemma could even be, I'm not good enough, or I can't do this, or I don't know how to do this. The question the person should ask is, are you being 
ego-oriented or action-oriented? Are you right now concentrating on the next action you should take, on the purpose that you're serving in the world, or are you concentrating on yourself? So even if a person says, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not um, powerful enough, I'm not connected enough, I don't know what I should be doing. When a person says that, what they're really concentrated is on themselves, on their own ego. They view themselves as detached. I, by myself, the way I am in the world, is not smart enough, beautiful enough, rich enough, powerful enough, able enough, and so on and so on. But if a person is action-oriented, they say, what does God want me to do right now? What's the next step I can take in the world to create more good? It doesn't really matter who I am or what I do. It only matters what does God want me to do at this time. So I actually had an experience like this this week. As you know, since the start of the war in Ukraine, I've been working very hard to assist as much as we can to Ukrainian and Russian refugees. And unfortunately, in recent weeks, we encountered a case of a family with eight children who came from Russia. They're converts, um, the Russian family who converted to Judaism in Russia, and they came to Israel with eight children, and the mother is expecting any day. But like many other families of converts, they're getting a lot of um, difficulty from the Ministry of Internal Affairs, and the ministry is very particular to check their credentials and to check that their conversion is real. And, and so it's taking a lot of time. So this woman is supposed to give birth like literally any day, and she has no status in Israel, and she has no medical insurance. So I've worked with some other activists to help her assist get status, but you know it wasn't going anywhere. And then one of the um, activists I've been working with told me, "Why don't you just WhatsApp Betala Smotrich? Yes, the next Minister of Treasury, a really high-ranking Israeli um, politician. So I do have his WhatsApp number." But, you know, I didn't feel very comfortable WhatsApping him. It was also like 9 p.m. already. And and there I was sitting, you know, I don't feel comfortable being uh, being in this position, WhatsApp being this really high-ranking person. And, um, and then I said to myself, are you being ego-oriented or action-oriented? You have the WhatsApp number. What's the worst thing that could happen? You WhatsApp him and, you know, maybe he doesn't answer. He's not going to kill you, right? When you're thinking that you don't feel comfortable WhatsApping him, you're really ego-oriented and not action-oriented. So sure enough, I got my, you know, courage together and I WhatsApped him. And within 15 minutes, he WhatsApped me back. Then he passed it on to um, to one of his assistants to deal with, to take to address. And to make a long story short, I don't know if it's just him, because really we've worked on this case very hard from many different angles, but hopefully this woman will get her status within the next few hours and hopefully before she gives birth. So the point of this is that we very often feel uncomfortable doing things um, for various reasons, but that's just because our ego is talking and we're not being action-oriented. So when you look at various things you can do to make the world better, to help somebody, to assist somebody, to make uh, your community better, and you feel like, oh, I feel like so uncomfortable doing that. What will people think about me? What will people say? Will people think that I'm just sticking out? Or, or what can a little person like me do? All of those words 
are just ego trying to prevent us from taking the next step because there's always the next step. And our sages tell us that um, when tzaddikim, the righteous people, look at the world, they see the evil inclination as a hair, a piece of hair. But in the next world, when they look back, they see it as a mountain. And the wicked, the Rashaim, when they look at the evil inclination in this world, they see it as a mountain. And when they look back in the next world, they see it as a strand of hair. So what is the meaning of that? The righteous individuals, the successful individuals, they look at their challenges, at the evil inclination, at their difficulties, at everything that's preventing them from reaching their goals. And they say, okay, it's just a hip sort of hair. I just have to make one more step. Okay, it's, it's, it's a small step, just like a strand of hair. It's nothing big. I don't have to move mountains. I'm just going to make a small step. And then they look at the next small step, at the next small step, at the next small step. And surely, by the time they're done, by the time they reach the next world, they'll look back at their life and they're like, wow, I've conquered this huge mountains. Look what I've done. Wow. The... People who are not righteous, and we mean people who are not successful, people who don't know how to, you know, how to make the most of this world, when they look around themselves and they see their um, challenges, they say, oh, wow, this is such a mountain. I will never conquer it. I will never get to the top of it. This is so hard. And they give up. And when they come to the next world, they look back and they say, Oh, it was just a strand of hair. I could have made a step and another step and another step. Yeah, it's a big mountain. But if I would have just concentrated on those steps, I would have made it happen. And then what they have is regrets. So each one of us has a choice in every single moment, whether we want to be righteous, quote unquote, or not. And if we're righteous, the righteous approach to life is to say, okay, what's the next step? One step. One step at a time. What can I do now? What good can I bring to the world now? Because I'm not here to be concentrated on myself. I'm not here alone. I'm not here for myself. I'm not here for my purpose. I'm here to make the world a better place. And if you'd like to make the world a better place, I actually never do this. And I think in the three years I've been running the show, I've never um, approached it for help. But now I do. Um, There are thousands upon thousands of Ukrainian and Russian Jews who have come to this country who need help. For the Ukrainians who came uh, in the beginning of the year, for many of them, their government assistance is running out and they still need help in being able to set themselves up in the country. They're just coming out of their shock. It takes years for people to find their bearings in this country. For the Russian refugees, Russian Jews who came here, many of them still don't have status. Many of them came to Israel after the mobilization. Their draft was announced in September. And there are about 7,000 of them who are still awaiting uh, an appointment with the Ministry of uh, Internal Affairs to have their status. And they also need help. So we are setting up a space in Jerusalem where every person can come with any problem. They can call in with any problem that they have, and they can come with any problem that they have. We're going to have programs there because we're finding that 60 to 70% of people who came from Ukraine and Russia feel lonely 
very lonely, detached. They need help. They need to be part of a community. So we're going to create the sense of the community. And the third thing we're going to do in the center is we're going to have an accelerator to assist other small ventures in the Russian community to raise more money so they can make things happen. So three things we're doing. A, we're setting up a call center. We had one, but we were forced to close it due to lack of funding where people can call and get any question answered or any resource that they need. Number two, a community center where people can come for programs and um, and learn things to be part of a community. And number three, an accelerator to help other activists in the Russian community learn how to scale up and create bigger ventures to help the Russian community. And what I'm asking from you is to help us to donate. It can be a dollar, it can be five dollars, it can be a thousand dollars, it can be ten thousand dollars, whatever you can afford. I'm putting my phone number and my email in the description of this show. And this is a one time event that I'm asking for your help. Please help us help Jews from Russia and Ukraine. These are our people. Probably most of the Jewish people listening to this podcast, your family came over to uh, Europe or the United States from Russia or Ukraine 100, 150 years ago. And somebody helped your grandparents and great-grandparents along the way. Now it's your opportunity to pay it forward. If it's a dollar, it's appreciated. Whatever you can help, whatever the small stuff that you can make, to assist us, assist our brothers and sisters from Ukraine and Russia. So once again, I'm putting my contact information in the show description, and you're welcome to reach out, and then I will tell you how you can make that contribution. Um, Thank you so much for being with me today. I wish all of us an amazing week. I hope you find an opportunity next week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, to reach out to your local Chabad house and find out if they have a celebration of Yutet Kislev, And maybe join them, because I think you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be fun for you. It's going to be a beautiful event. I know in my community we have two of these events, and they're really amazing. So have a great week. And this was Leah Aroni with news from the Torah. Bye-bye now. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips with scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candle lighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas. 
now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Doris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 